Welcome to Wild Game Dynasty's podcast number two, January 28, 2019. Today's guest, we're welcoming John Eberhardt. John is a resident of, I will say it's uh, Central Michigan. He's uh, doesn't really live uh, per se in a big town. It's not his style. Um, matter of fact, uh, he's uh, maybe out in the sticks a, l- a little bit. And uh, beautiful little setting. And we find ourselves at his place down in what we call his man cave. Um, beautiful, beautiful setting that he has. And for those of you that uh, know John Eberhardt, you know him probably uh, for, for the same reasons that a lot of us do. Uh, for those that don't, um, you won't find his name thrown into the mix of uh, uh, having a TV show that uh, uh, travels the globe, um, hunts on private leases, um, you know, follows up with uh, maybe property owners that have the hit list bucks, and uh, not to not to knock those type of hunts, but uh, it's not John's style. Matter of fact, uh, it's just the opposite. John is a uh, fellow that has a, uh, a plethora of Pope and Young bucks registered, whitetail bucks. Most or all, actually, have either been shot on public lands or private property where he basically... He's known to knock on people's door and ask for hunting privileges or permission to hunt. He's not one to walk back into a uh, thousand acres. Um, he might do that, uh, but um, some of his uh, nicest bucks have been shot right behind where people live. Maybe they have uh, five, six acres. Maybe they got. Uh, maybe they have a lot more than that, but. Uh, he goes where the where the bucks are. We always hear about stories like that, where this, you know, big uh, 160, 170 class whitetail was spotted after hunting season. Where does he where does he hide? How does he get by? Um, well, I think John's got a pretty good handle on that. And uh, without further ado, I want to roll right into uh, our interview with John. All right. Let's okay. So, alrighty. Hey, thanks for having me in your home, John. Gary, it's hey. my pleasure. Hey, thank you so much. <laughs> it's absolutely my pleasure. Yeah, we, I mean, uh, we're down in your man cave, and uh, there's a lot to be seen down here, but if we look out the window, uh, what is it, April what? <laughs> April 4th, I think. Yeah. 3, April yeah. 3rd. Yeah, you would think it was, uh, you know, about February 1st. Oh, it's ugly out. <laughs> it, is. it is. You really know, you just drove over here in it for two hours, probably. Yeah, yeah, we, I did. And uh, you warned me that it was kind of tough out. And uh, my wife, even um, when I left, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of looked at me funny because she was leaving to go to work, but her drive is like two uh, two miles. And so, yeah. but hey, you know, we postponed this for a couple of things, and uh, there's always something on the agenda. <laughs> You know, whatever God throws at us, you know. So It's a busy time. It is, it yeah. is. So, um, you know, I, I was just amazed and uh, it was really a treat to look at some of your uh, some of your past hunts, some of your uh, pictures of your past hunts. And uh, it just, um, you know, when you talked about, uh, when I asked you, where'd you shoot this buck? Or, you know, where's this <coughs> particular buck from? I 
was really amazed at when I asked you whereabouts. I mean, it sounds like everything or close to everything is, um, and there's no nothing other than free range deer. Uh, that's all on. I've ever done. Fifty. I've bow hunted in Michigan for fifty-three seasons. Wow. And I've got thirty-one bucks in the Michigan record book. I've taken a lot more, but thirty-one are in the record book. And uh, I also hunted out of state. 22 times and I've got 19 Pope and Young bucks from out of state. So total I got 50 bucks in the record book. Oh my gosh. And 100% of them are from public land or free knock on doors for permission properties. I've never owned, leased, paid to hunt any place in my life, never hunted over bait or a food plot. So. Oh my. So I don't think anybody else in the country no. can say they've got 50 bucks in the record book from 32 different properties, six different states, most of mine are from Michigan, but uh, you know, that's all been public land and free knock on doors. Most yeah. most people that have several bucks in the record book are from, you know, a couple nice pieces of micromanaged properties like the TV guys hunt. Yes. You know, freebies. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had a conversation on the way here because I had some, uh, you know, some dashboard time and, you know, finally had to quit that conversation when the roads got a little bit bad. But we talked about that with another fella. And then, you know, there's, uh, you know, hey, it isn't for everybody, and a lot yeah. more people are uh, less um, susceptible or relying upon maybe getting involved in that situation. I, it's kind of neat to see some people getting back to basics, and I'm not talking about picking up a, uh, a longbow. I'm talking about doing what you're discussing yeah. is, uh, um, you know, don't show up in, at somebody's uh, uh, plot of land and have them walk the, walk you right to the stand. Yeah, is, yeah. You know. a, lot of pe a lot more people are, well... A lot more people are being forced to do free knock-on at public lands because everything, ever since the TV guys started making trophy management such a big deal, everybody's leasing leasing up all the property and pushing the little blue-collar guys out. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's really, really hard to get hunting permission. Um, so, you know, most people are, well, it's hard to even find a lease nowadays in Michigan. Yes. You know, I've never leased anything, but it's even hard to go out and find a 20 or 30 acre lease. So most people are right. stuck on three knock on doors, two acre parcels. One of my biggest bucks I ever shot in Michigan was on a two acre parcel in 2014. My two biggest bucks in Michigan were on public land, oh back my. in a cattail swamp. And uh, yeah, bow hunting is, is something that is still actually growing, especially since the advent of the cross or the crossbows. Yes. You know, a lot of gun hunters are converting to crossbow yeah. hunting now and filling their tags prior to gun seasons. So, yeah. you know, there's, they're selling more archery licenses now. Yes. Uh, and it's just more enjoyable. Archery yeah. hunting is more enjoyable. You get to see a lot more social activity. The weather's warmer. You know, the deer aren't running like scary cats trying to yeah. find a place to hide opening yep. day and then you know you hardly ever see them during daylight hours right. the rest of the season so yeah. bow hunting's just enjoyable. I agree catching them when they're uh, more of a natural setting yeah. as much as possible uh, so you know I looked at a picture I mean I'll poke, poke at you a little bit I, sure. I've seen some you know some sideburns that I've not seen you sport today but uh, so how many years have you been bow hunting then? Since 1963. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I've got... Uh, That's beautiful. I think my first big buck was in 1969 that I shot, and then the next one was 72. So I've been bow hunting a lot of years. I didn't start hunting out of state. I quit gun hunting. I used to gun hunt. I, used, I quit gun hunting in 1991, and then I just got bored sitting around for two weeks in Michigan during gun season while everybody else was hunting. Yeah. Uh, I just kind of lost my drive for gun hunting. 
so I started looking into hunting out of state in 1997, and I just bought some plat books. Uh, in that year, it was Iowa. Okay. And I just cold called from the plat books because they had the phone numbers of the property owners and got some property to hunt wow. before I left. And uh, and now I've hunted in five different states and taken 19 Pope and Young Bucks on 20, 22 out-of-state hunts. And that's that also is public land and free knock on doors. Never wow. paid anything for that's that. That's amazing. That's just a uh, true testament and a, almost a challenge, uh, not to say that's what your attempt is, but it can be viewed as a for so many people. Mm -hmm. uh, guys and gals, it's a neat challenge to say, hey, this can be done. And it, and yeah. it doesn't have to be a trophy, but it can be a, a, a good resourceful hunt just by using those knock-on-door tactics. Very, yes. Oh, yeah. It's not too hard. It depends on where you go. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go to Illinois or Iowa, which has gotten so much press over the last 20 years because that's where all the TV guys hunt, it's hard to get permission there. But if you go to Kansas, western Kansas, especially where you get into more plainsy areas or Nebraska or the Dakotas, it's not too hard to get free permission, free permission, and uh, and it's so much easier to hunt. There's so many mature bucks because there's so little hunting pressure out there, yeah. and they're relatively stupid. They're really easy to kill. To kill 140 incher out there in a week, for me, is not an issue. And what I find, because I have a lot of friends that hunt out of state, uh, okay. typically during pre-run, typically they go during the first week in November, and. Um, and it's just a lot, a lot easier if you're detail oriented and you're killing, you know, two and a halfs and an occasional three and a half in states like Michigan or PA or West Virginia, you yes. know, states that get pounded to death, where you have to be detail oriented and you actually have to know how to hunt to kill two and a half and three and a half year olds. You go out there where there's hardly any hunting pressure whatsoever. Yes, it's easy to kill three and a half and four and a half year olds. That's wow. why all the TV guys hunt out there. Yeah. You know, this is neat to know, though. I mean, that it's not an impossibility for the person that really is uh, still built. Well, we're always building our expertise. Yep. We're always learning every day, hopefully. But for the person that, you know, it feels like they need to build a much stronger skill set, mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like they should avoid doing some of these things that you're talking yep. about. It should be right up, right in their wheelhouse, really. Yeah, to give you one example, I have a, a pretty good friend. His name's Ed Simpson. He lives over in Beaverton, which is not too far mm -hmm. from here, central Michigan. Yes. And uh, he owns 40 acres. He's hunted it for 43 seasons, and that's in Beaverton. And the biggest buck, he's taken 68 bucks off that property. The biggest one was 108 inches. So oh. 43 years... 68 bucks, the biggest bucks, 108 inches. Can I Which, for Michigan, is a three-year-old. Yeah, can I interrupt, though? Sure. I mean, did he ever say that genetics are just not there, that there's, or had he um, seen some larger bucks? The genetics aren't there. you got to keep in mind, central Michigan, it's very sandy soil. Our, yes. our uh, you know, crop yields per acre are very low, so I kind of, I kind of correlate crop yield, crop yield per acre to antler growth. You know, you go out to Kansas Mineral. and Illinois and Iowa, they have a lot of minerals in the soil, and the same minerals that double the crop yield per acre over Michigan are the same minerals that grow antlers. Okay. So, uh, but but where, what I was getting to is this Ed Simpson's biggest buck he ever killed in Michigan was 108 inches, and when I started going out of state and killing all these bucks, and I was a solo hunter, I always hunted by myself, he was like, God, I got to start doing that. So he got into that, and he made... In his first 14 hunts out of state, and he went by himself just like I did, all free permission yeah. in public land. 14 hunts, he took 12 bucks. The biggest one, or the biggest one was 168. The smallest one was 117. Oh my! So this guy, 
in 43 years, the biggest buck he shot on his property out of 68 bucks was 108 inches. In 14 trips, he took 12 bucks between 117 and 168 inches in 12 oh, trips. Wow. And the average time it took him to kill one was four days. Wow. So okay. his, his, it wasn't for a lack of skill set back in Beaverton for, shoot, for shooting smaller deer. Correct. He actually uh, is a, sounds like a very successful, he's in tune to what needs to be done. He's a very good hunter. And he killed a lot of 80 to 95 inch two and a half year old, you know, like 14 inch eight points on his property. Yes. And to kill a two and a half, if you can kill two and a half year olds in Michigan on heavily pressured areas where yes. you got 30 bow hunters in a section and 40 to 50 gun hunters in a section, if you can kill two and a half year olds, you can go out there and kill three and four and a half year olds with no problem. Wow. That's pretty neat. No problem. That's pretty neat. On a short term hunt. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So dialing it back a little bit, or I should say going back in time, um, how did you become involved in bow hunting? It's an interesting story because nobody in my family hunted. <laughs> wow. So I'm walking by this archery shop in Ypsilanti down in southern Michigan. Mm -hmm. And uh, I walked in, and I was just a punk little kid. And the owner of the shop was standing in there shooting his bow. I and mean, it was a recurve. So this, this is back way before compounds. This is in the early 60s. And... Uh, and back then there was something called the PA round, which is a three-inch bullseye at 20 yards. And he was just practicing shooting at it. And he was draining that blue bullseye every, every shot. And I was like, wow, that's cool. And I was always kind of, I had friends in junior high and stuff that's parents deer hunted and stuff. So I was always kind of interested in whitetails. Yes. So I walked over and I said, excuse me, but do you deer hunt? And he kind of grinned and said, yeah. And again, we're the only two people in the shop. And I said, man, you must kill a lot of deer. You're a really good shot. He said, son, I've shot at six deer. Back then there wasn't a lot of deer like there is right. now in southern Michigan. He said, I've shot at six deer and they were all closer than that target and I never touched any of them. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you put fur on it and I can't, I just lose it. <laughs> so he was being real honest. He was being very honest because we were the only two in the store yeah. probably. <laughs> but uh, that kind of got me going and I mm. uh, ended up buying a 45 pound Ben Pearson off him. And, oh my. And had an older guy in his mid thirties named Leroy take me hunting with him out on public land in Pinkney Recreation Area. And uh, then I just took history on Oh, uh, archery time. or hunting uh, yep. equipment. Uh, yeah, I wanted a bear bow, but I couldn't afford bear. Bear was more expensive than Ben Pearson's. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, wow. So that's why I had a Pearson. Yeah, neat. Um, so, kind of back to back in history a little bit. Uh, um, your introduction, but what was it that kind of kept you moving in that direction? I mean, with bow hunters, as we know, or mm -hmm. I mean, I had a a close friend that's a very good bow hunter and we were chit-chatting at camp one time up north and he basically summed it up he said boy bow hunters particularly bow hunters are very selfish people mm -hmm. they want to be by themselves they'll put hunting in front of a lot of things that they shouldn't and um and he went on and on i guess i don't want to admit to a whole bunch of stuff for the public to see including my wife but uh but, you know, it, it really takes, uh, I mean, you almost have to have some sort of mentoring going on. Well, I did, Leroy, the guy that took me that was in his mid-30s, he was my only mentor. And he was a very, very good bow hunter for the day. You know, but back then we were shooting anything. It could be, you know, button bucks, does, whatever, yes. deer. We were shooting deer. 
for meat. He yes. was a meat hunter. Um, but I, I really didn't have a mentor. And I was always, you know, once I got out on my own, you know, I was a solo guy. That What you said is very true. Most excellent bow hunters, successful bow hunters, are solo hunters. They, they If there's a mistake made, they want to know they made it. They yes. don't want to take other people because of wind direction or getting winded. You know, but there's more potential for mistakes. And, you know, when you get to the point where you're, targeting mature bucks in a pressured area, not like what you see on TV. Those are not pressured areas right. whatsoever. But when you're targeting mature bucks in a pressured area, you're walking on eggshells all the time, and you want to be the only one walking on eggshells. The more people, the less your odds of killing, making a kill on a mature buck. Yes. So being a solo hunter is really interesting. And, and like I told you while we were chatting earlier, Miles Keller is the only person in the entire bow hunting industry that I've ever looked up to. I, I have pretty much zero respect for most TV hunters because yes. uh, you don't have to be a good deer hunter to kill what deer where they hunt. Right. But Miles Keller, even when I used to go to the archery shows, the big one, the ATA show, he was always, always walking by himself down the aisles. He is a, just the epitome of a solo hunter. And uh, I've always been that way too. I never even took my kids... You know, I taught them how to bow hunt, but once they got old enough, they got their friends to get them permission. Yes. And my kids and I, we don't hunt together. If we, if I go out of state, I might take one of my kids once in a while, but typically we never ever hunt together. Right. We're all solo hunters. Thus, uh, you're scouting out your own areas. Yes. Uh, setting up your own hunt spots, etc. Um, and it, it, and my brother. Uh, I would consider him to be very, very accomplished, and he's a, a he, he probably won't mind, he, I, he'll admit that he's a loner. Yeah. So he was almost cut from that cloth, and he was a person back when we lived uh, not too far from Heartland, and uh, down in Livingston County. He was one of the few that, at his age, that was trapping and shooting squirrels with his bow, and everybody else was, oh, that dumb kid, you know, what's he always doing carrying that bow around? <laughs> And trapping. Yeah, and trapping. And, and my dad taught us, but my dad also, uh, you know, taught him real well, I think. And, uh, and you know, he had the skill set, he had the mindset, my brother did, to take that to his own level. Wow. You know, he needed a mentor, like you say. You had that mm -hmm. store owner, that archery you know, yep. pro shop. And, uh, but well, then, he, he never, I went, never went hunting with him. I just knew another guy that was a bow hunter named Leroy, and he took me. Ah, okay. But, uh, yeah. That's interesting, because most trappers are very good woodsmen. Most success, I always right. have to say successful, most successful trappers, trappers are good yeah. woodsmen, and they they know how to handle scent, because if yes. you're trapping fox and coyotes, you've got to be scent-free. I pay zero attention to wind when I'm deer hunting. I've, I've got the wind conquered. I've got my scent control down to a science. Really? For 17 years, I have oh. paid zero attention, absolutely zero attention to wind direction. I, I never get winded. Oh, but, man. Uh, but trappers, you know, they, yeah. when they're you making sets I mean, and stuff, they got to do that. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I, I, I remember trapping. My brother and I even kind of rekindled our conversations on this recently about the gentleman that used to stop by where we lived uh, in Parshaville, you know, outside of mm -hmm. Ireland. And, he was the fur buyer, and my mom was always home, and we were off in school. My dad was at work, and I always thought, even back when I was eight or nine, man, I tell you, I hope, I hope that guy has a big patience level, because if he thinks he's coming to our house and swindle my mom out of, you know, these muskrat furs at a low price, he's got another day coming. She was a hard bargain. 
she knew what they were worth. She could, she could judge the really oh, the yeah. fur and oh, she the was size. Very, she was very good at, it and she and she was not yeah. one you'd want to cross. <laughs> <laughs> so, the the trivia was what was the old fur buyer's name? And I think we found out. I forgot to this day now again. But uh, you know, it just mm. that's something that you just you know. Yeah, the NUP is full of opportunities for that one, so I'm here yeah. tra transitioning to that topic right away. But uh, yeah, yeah. L let me ask you a little bit. You brought mm -hmm. it up, wind. Yeah. Now, with anything, we have trade secrets. Mm -hmm. But are are your are, are the, is that a uh, topic? No, that's not a trade secret whatsoever. Uh, I do these whitetail workshops, which we will talk about later. Yes. And oh, we cover yeah. we cover Suntlock in that. Oh, I am neat. not. A quote-unquote Suntlock fanatic, but I am a very fanatic about activated carbon. Okay. And Suntlock owns the patent on using activated carbon in hunting garments. Nobody ah. else can use it except Suntlock. Really? Yes, that's wow. correct. I don't know how many years they have left on the patent, but if anybody else uses activated carbon, they have to pay, have to pay royalty to Sunlock. As they should. Yeah, yeah so that's the, uh, why these other companies don't even touch the absorptivity of human odor molecules that Sunlock does because Sunlock uses activated carbon. And activated carbon is used in hospitals for in, uh, basically absorbing poisons out of people's system when they yes. swallow poisons or too many pills. It's used in chemical warfare suits. It's used in paint respirators. Gas mask, uh, NASA uses it in spacesuits. Um, every EMT vehicle has, you know, activated carbon pills for the same deal for patients, mm -hmm. people that swallow harmful drugs. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's used in literally thousands. I, I never believe anything the hunting industry says. The hunting industry, there isn't any hunting company that has research and development centers or pays scientists, staff scientists to, you know, full-time jobs is researching, you know, technologies. Okay. So everything that's in the hunting industry as far as technologies for scent control comes from some other industry. So I always Google the technology and see how what other companies use it. Ah. And activated carbon is literally used in tens of thousands of absorptants. So we're talking, things. you say activated carbon, it's much different than you know, I've like charcoal? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you. much different. Okay. Activated carbon is something that's heated at 1,400 plus degrees Fahrenheit under pressure. Okay. So it's like it can be wood, it can be, uh, it's not like, for instance, they use coconut carbon because the pore structure of coconut carbon, once it's activated, uh, is, is better suited for the molecular size of human odor molecules. Wow. Whereas chemical warfare suits use a different type of uh, carboniferous uh, material with bigger pores because the comp, you know, the chemical warfare compound molecules are a lot bigger, yes. so the pore structures have to be bigger to absorb it. Okay. But uh, if you if you took and this is going to sound like total BS, but anybody has all anybody has to do is Google the technology to find out. If you took a one butter tub size, you know, a one pound butter tub, mm -hmm. and you yes. filled it with a pound of activated carbon, coconut carbon particles and these particles are literally smaller than a grain of sand and you took all the interior pores and tertiary pores and the exterior surface of every single particle it covered over a hundred acres oh my that's how really that's the porosity of the activated carbon wow powerful very very much so that's why it's the most absorbent substance known to man and that's why it's used in so many 
industries worldwide. Yes. Wow. And so uh, the company again? Uh, Scentlock. Scentlock. Yep. I'm sure most people have heard of it. Yes. And, oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's not something where you just go buy a Scentlock jacket and pants and you're good. Right. I mean, there's a procedure. There's a proper care instructions. Uh, you know, if you don't wear the head head cover with a drop-down face mask, uh, you're going to get winded. Yes. Because 40% of your odor molecules come out of your head. Right. Uh, you know, it blows me away that even the TV guys that Scentlock sponsors, none of them take care of their Scentlock properly. And they all wear hats with yeah. cool-looking face paint, so they look like nice Indians and beards <laughs> and exposed faces. Yeah. And if those guys hunted in a pressured area, they'd get winded. You know, but, I they, but where they hunt, the deer are not targeted until they're usually three or four years old. Ah, so those deer yeah. walk by hunters with no negative consequences until they reach a certain age or kill criteria. So they're Very much forgiving. more tolerant of human odor, human presence fake tactics, they're much more tolerant of so many things that a typical blue collar owner on the properties they hunt yes. are not tolerant of. Wow. So they, that's why they can get away with these major gaps in everything they do. Well, I remember, it just reminds me when I bought my uh, my hunt suit, my scent, mm -hmm. you know, scent free or scent controlling suit yep. from um, Jim Burnett. Mm -hmm. We know who Jim is. Yes. And, him and uh, Brian, mm -hmm. I think we're both working. So I went in their store, and uh, finally I thought, oh, i got to get out of here. I've been here for so long. I came in to do something, and I haven't done it. Well, anyways, uh, they took me over to their suits that were uh, encased in large Ziploc suit, uh, yeah, bags, and sealed. And, and then, you know, I forget, Jim had to take off and answer a phone call, but you know, I, I just looked at Brian and thought, oh, come on, man, you know, you're being a fanatic. And he was at the point, he says, hey, I don't think you should buy this if you're not going to utilize it. You want to know why they did that? Because I know why. I know exactly why they did that. Somebody told them? No. Jim Bur Bay Archery used to fletch thousands and thousands of arrows oh, a year. yes. His, uh, his brother's daughter used to absolutely. fletch arrows on those wheels in the back room. Yeah, still does. One and of the them fletch tight, they used to take their, the first year they carried Scentlock, because I used to go to, I knew Jim really well. Yeah. First year they carried Scentlock, they had the Scentlock on a rounder, you know, a regular hanger rack. And it was over in the other corner of the building. And the fletch Probably tight... when they were on Johnson Street. No, 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 okay. they did not carry, they didn't have space on Johnson right. Street. Right, you're right, yeah. Uh, so the fletch tight odor molecules from the fletch tight glue actually got over to that end of the building and carbon actually pulls, it has an energy to it, it has some electrons that actually yeah. pull molecules in and it absorbed all these. You know, once I got old enough to get a car in this flesh tight. <laughs> and then Jim oh. thought he could take those suits, because it got to the point where he could smell it in the yeah. suits. Wow. And customers were smelling the flesh tight in the suits. So he took them up to the laundromat to put them in a dryer, because that's how you regenerate activated carbon. And it didn't come out. Oh, because no. the glue on the fletch type molecules actually bonded to the carbon and they wouldn't break free. Because typically the way the molecules break free is the heat energizes the molecules, just like there's expansion joints in the Mackinac Bridge and the yes. concrete highways. You know, on 80, 90 degree sunny days, the molecules ex get energized and they expand and they, yes. and they so that everything expands. 
Well, when those molecules expand, they break, a lot of them break free from the bond of the uh, carbon and exit out the dryer. Just like, you know, Mackinac Bridge, it's got eight feet expansion joints. Because on 90 degree sunny days, if they didn't have those, all the steel would buckle on the bridge. Yes. So anyway, he thought that he would get all the uh, odor molecules out of those suits, and he didn't. Oh. <laughs> they wouldn't come out because they were bonded by the Either glue. he ate that or the company helped him out a little bit. He called the owner's scent lock, and the owner's scent lock swapped every suit out wow. for him. And then Jim started, that's why he had to start carrying them in bags. Yeah. And it, seemed, it would seem, no matter what, that'd be the proper way to store it to begin with. Yes, they're supposed to always be in airtight containers unless you're using them in the field. Okay. And they have to be re recharged every four to six months. Uh, you have to, again, head cover, yeah. drop down face mask where only your eyes are open. you got to wear rubber boots or neoprene boots that are scent free. And you have to, you know, most people that have bought scent lock, they don't wear the head cover or they take a backpack with them. Most people have a fanny pack or a backpack and they never, ever wash it. Yet right. they get into it with their bare hands every day to reload it. So you can have your body totally clad in perfect, take perfectly cared for scent lock, and you got this huge human scent wick in the tree with you in the form of your backpack that you've never wow. washed, and that's enough to make you get winded. Wow! So everything's got to work in conjunction with each other, and once you do it, you, and it's not a hard process. Wind becomes irrelevant. Wow! And when you can make the wind irrelevant, oh. you'll up your you'll up your kills fifty percent immediately. And we're just talking deer. We're just talking deer. I mean, I mean, I I do uh, a decent amount of uh, uh, black bear hunts mm -hmm. northern Michigan, Upper Peninsula. Yep. And since you know, big as we know, I mean, this could only yeah. Some so of anybody... your some of your premier black bear hunt places and elk hunt places won't let you go without using activated carbon clothing. Wow. Why not though? I mean, the success uh, of the hunter's reflection on the uh, the, the camp. Outfitter. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, they want. It's amazing how some of those guys want you to probably succeed more than you yourself really do, or mm -hmm. in a different way. But uh, yeah, well, let's let's talk about you alluded to uh, these camps that you do. That's a, actually a good uh, feed right into that because good. what you just said about the the hunters being a reflection on the camp. Mm -hmm. um, I do these whitetail workshops, and on these whitetail workshops, I teach scent control location preparation, entry routes, exit routes, you know, is this a day, morning location, an evening location, is this a early season location, it, it, you know, it basically they're two-day events. The first day is in the field. We visit 14 different hunting locations of mine. Wow. And this is on 37 acres of huntable property, mm -hmm. and uh, I've hunted it for 10 years. I've taken six book bucks off it. There's two other guys that have each hunted it 20 years, and they've taken zero. So I hunt different than other people. Absolutely. And my location preparation, my entry routes and exit routes are different. I have to cross rivers to enter sometimes and cross rivers to exit sometimes. But I, I'm also doing scouting properties. I'm going to uh, West Virginia for three days this weekend to wow. scout somebody's property. And I'm making it mandatory that people going forward actually come to my, one of my two-day workshops um, to see how I prepare locations and how I have a plan for every tree, you know, when to hunt at what time of season, what time of day, and what kind of entry route and exit routes, and how high you need to be if you're it's a rut phase location when the foliage is down, or you know, stuff, just all those little intricate details. Yes. Because 
I, I feel like if I go to somebody's property and scout it for them and say, you need to put a location here or here or here, and then I just leave, and then I leave it to them to prep a location, I have found very few hunters when I've looked at other people's locations that prep locations like I do. Most people, I wouldn't hunt the locations they've prepped. Um, so if I just leave and they prep them incorrectly and hunt them incorrectly, enter them incorrectly, exit them incorrectly, that's a reflection on me. They're going to say, well, John sucks because yeah. I didn't kill anything and he told me to, to, to hunt in this spot. Right. So, you know, I'm making it mandatory going forward from 20 in 2019 that you have to attend a workshop. Back, I'll scout your property. Back to the uh, statement. I mean, yeah. uh, their success is a reflection on me. Yeah, yeah and if, if nothing else, uh, I would assume that it's nice to hear from some of the folks that either attend your workshops mm -hmm. or some of your consulting that you've done yep. on their properties and learn that uh, some of the uh, tactics you've advised them on I produced. I had a lot of nice kills from people that attended my workshops last fall. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, one of the 14-year-old girls. She killed oh, her dad's butt. She came from New York with her dad. Nice. <laughs> and that nice. was awesome. And the second day of the workshop is at Jay's Sporting Goods. It's an all-day seminar on a Sunday. Yeah. And Jay gives every Jay's gives everybody a 15% discount voucher mm, for, nice. for a week. Wow. Um, and that's in nice office chairs back in the outback room. So yes. Real comfortable. Uh, yeah, that is a nice little setting back there. Beautiful. Yeah. They have a nice facility. That's for sure. So, I mean, we look at some, I mean, it's in not just hunting, but a lot of industries. People um, hold a lot of their information <clears throat> that they have garnered over a long period of time mm -hmm. through trial and error, through educating themselves have spent a lot of money as well and they won't share that and that might not be in the hunting it might be we'll say a trapper or it might be something like fishing it might be something not in the recreation but we look at hunting a lot of hunters mm -hmm. great guys and gals but they not real good about sharing information they want to you know it's a it's like it's a uh, you know off the secret yeah go out, <laughs> gal, if i tell you i gotta kill you, you know? but I'm hearing quite the contrary from you. Not only are you doing seminars, but I mean, here we are sitting, prepping yeah. for a podcast. Yeah, and the books I've written are all on. My goal has always been to make whoever wants to pay attention and do the work and put the work forth to do it, to make people more successful deer hunters. Wow, that's beautiful. I think I think it changes their lives. It, yes. it changes how sporting goods, when they go in their local sporting goods store, how they interact with them. It changes how you interact with your family during deer season. I can remember back in the 70s, physically, not physically, but getting in arguments, wanting to get in arguments with my wife so I could justify going hunting. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. Yes. I would wow. get in an argument with, well, I'm going hunting, yeah. you know, and, oh. and that all changes. When you're successful, you just hunt smarter. I hunt yeah. probably one-third the amount of time I used to hunt yeah. 25 years ago, but yeah. I hunt a lot smarter, yes. and I just am a lot easier to get along with because I know... And she'll say I know what's going to happen. She'll say this about you that you're a lot easier to get along. No, I'm just yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think she would. Yeah, absolutely. I well, you know, it, it's would. funny. I think most hunters have a story, and a lot of them are year after year after year about getting into an argument uh, with their spouse over the same thing. And it's like Groundhog Day. Yeah. You know, 
And um, that's neat that uh, you shared that because, boy, I tell you what, I can relate to that one. I, you know, I, I remember I'm going hunting. We had a, that's right. know, a, a little girl. You're already home. mad at me, so I'm going to leave you. Yeah, it so makes, what? makes it easy now. I got, all, I got an hour north of uh, where we live, pulled in and, and discovered I left my quiver at home. Well, I was working third. Oh, yeah, I was working third shift, so I I took a nap in the van. Yeah, I wasn't gonna tell her. She still doesn't know to this day. And uh, I woke up and I looked at the clock and I thought, I don't know if I'm gonna make it home, take a shower, and get to work on time. I did, <laughs> oh, wow. but yeah, I got home and she didn't ask what I saw. Heck, I was yeah, kind of <laughs> happy she didn't, I guess. But yeah, that's neat. That's a neat uh, analogy, though, as far as I just want people to be more successful. I, yes, every I. Tell, tell everything in my books, every, absolutely everything. And I, I could care less if anybody buys a book or not. Most of the stuff that I talk about is online now. Uh, I, I'm starting uh, starting May 8th, uh, deer and deer hunting uh, topic videos for public and pressured property. They, wow. they start airing on May 8th. Explain that a little bit more. Uh, deer and deer hunting got a hold of me last summer Okay. because I'm... I'm their uh, go-to guy for public land and heavily pressured property. Perfect. And I've been writing for them for years and yep. a lot of other magazines as well. And uh, they couldn't think of anybody else to do these topic videos than me. Uh, they've got a guy that does micromanaged topic videos. They want okay. somebody to do blue-collar stuff. Yes. So they got a hold of me, and it was kind of funny. They sent a videographer out here. They figured it was good. They needed 26 topic videos. That's going to be for a six-month period, 26 wow. videos. And uh, they figured it was going to take four days of filming. So they were going to send him out, and we were going to do two full days of filming and then come back in March and do two more full days of filming. So he came in December. We filmed 40 topic videos in a day and two hours. Oh, my goodness. We were done at 10, 10 a.m. on day two. Wow. And the videographer said, and he's videographer he's videoed lots of tv guys yes. he said john i've never videoed anybody that did topic videos before they did them all in one take wow he said you did everything in one take most guys don't know their subject matter that well they have to keep going back and looking at stuff i was going to say yeah and he also said and probably 50 percent of the topics you covered have never been touched on youtube before oh my so that <laughs> I mean, I did a lot of just blue-collar, really important stuff when you're hunting heavily pressured land. Like, yeah. what type of flashlights for your entries? What type of boots? Uh, hand hand warmers, body warmers, uh, difference between white oaks and red oaks, entry routes, exit routes, you know, hunting in a harness. I'm a harness guy. Uh, just a lot of different stuff that fits blue-collar guys. Yeah, I, I mean, it made his job easier through the editing. Oh. Big time. And that's such a huge thing. Yeah. I mean, I refer back to my son and kind of see what he does. That's his fourth day. And I mean, it's sometimes not just hours, days, yeah. just to go yeah. through some clips. Yeah, these are just straight through. Wow. No, there wasn't, we never had a break on any of them. But like you say, I mean, this has been a way of, uh, not just a way of life, but it has been a way of life. Mm -hmm. And um, and you've established uh, a pattern of your behavior, we'll say. Yeah. And it was pretty easy, you know, to remember what, actually takes place and when all you're you, doing is re regurgitating when you actually do it all the time and i do seminars all over you know the upper midwest and i know the subject matter yes i know it like talking to you right now yes you know i can say it all the time you know yeah. people you can do 
you can do videos of people that are TV guys and stuff like that, but they're only hunting micromanaged property. If yeah. you get into any depth, they don't know anything. Right. They don't know anything. You know, they walk down a nice pristine two track with a climber on their back and get in a tree in a mature timber area with no understudy and kill big bucks. Yeah. You don't do that in pressured property in public land. No. It doesn't happen. No. You don't hunt field edges and kill big bucks in pressured areas in public right. land. Right. Right. Uh, so in those videos, I guess in a little bit of fairness to those folks, mm -hmm. um, they've carved out a niche for themselves. They, they're making some money. It's a business for them, but uh, it's a business. Yes. Yeah, it's just it's it's business and it's it's entertainment more than anything. It's not necessarily instructional or if at all. They just let them try to push it as instructional when it has absolutely no reference to the blue collar hunters whatsoever. Most no. most of the times, if you try and replicate what a lot of the TV guys do in yeah. your hunting in a pressured area. Yes. It'll probably spoof more deer than bring more deer in. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I mean, aggressive rattling and the, the amount of sense they use and uh, hunting field edges and hunting open areas, hunting in mature timber with a hang on 18 feet off the ground. It just doesn't get it. I mean, if you want to kill a year and a half old and two and a half sure. year old bucks, you might kill some. But if you want to kill real mature bucks, that doesn't get it. Would it be a lot for me to ask you to walk us through, I mean, you know our timeline this evening and, um, and what it would take to go from A through Z, but I mean, we can fast forward at the level that you feel comfortable at, but I guess a I, I, uh, picture, I, wanna, I would almost you know, want to be a, a mouse in your pocket, mm -hmm. peeking out and looking at what you do to prep. And, and I know there's so much yeah. more, I mean, yeah, the, the, the target practicing, et cetera, et cetera, but in the equipment um, preparation, making sure you have all the tools necessary. But I'm really kind of asking, you, you got out of your vehicle. Okay. So you're not talking about location preparation. You're talking about right. actually physically going hunting. Right. And I don't know why. It's just, that's what I'm asking right this minute. But... Yes. Okay. If I get out of my vehicle, well, let's the dressing process. I, I yes. drive to a, I drive to a hunting location in my street clothes, just like I'd be dressed right now. Yes. Then I, I hunt out of a minivan. I'm not one of those guys that I'm, I'm not a truck guy. Right. I want to slide between my seats where there's nothing in the back, no seats. I take them out the day I buy my van. Don't put them back in until I sell my van. So I've got a little <laughs> mini hotel room in the back. I don't neat. need a four wheel drive. All that's going to do is get me stuck someplace where I need a you know, a record. record to get me out. Yes. So a minivan's fine, and I slide between the seats. I change into my scent lock clothes. My backpack's in its own airtight tote. My scent lock's all in its own airtight tote. All my layering garments are washed in scent-free detergent. They're in their own airtight tote. So I get everything dressed, and then I put on my backpack, grab my bow, walk out to my tree, and, uh, you know, climb up in my tree. My entry route, it you know, depends on where I'm hunting, you know, entry route. Typically, any one of my locations, I'm going to have a different entry than an exit. They're going to be different. Really? Yes. Okay. That's yeah, neat. Typically, well, let's say, let's say I'm hunting in a tree, let's say there's a crop field, and 50 yards from off the crop field, let's say from the crop field it goes downhill and into, let's say, a swamp or something, a marsh, and let's say there's a white oak tree on the edge of that marsh, and that's the tree I'm hunting in, and it's dropping acorns this particular year, so that's why I'm hunting it. I'm hunting next to it. You know, what I would do on my evening entry, if it were an evening entry, I would walk out into the crop field, 
not that I would never walk down the edge of the crop field where there's timber because I might spook deer in the timber with my walking down the edge. Okay. So I'd walk out into the crop field and then when I get even with the the tree that I want to go, then I'll walk across the field to the edge of edge where that tree is at, and then I'll just walk down over to the tree. So I'm not walking down the edge. So now I'm not spooking anything with my entry because there's nothing out in the field because it's early afternoon. Yes. And then, or even if it's corn, I'll walk through the corn and then cut through the corn to that tree. And then after the hunt, I won't, if it's an open crop field, I won't come back up and exit out the edge of the crop field because there's going to be deer in it and I'm going to spook them with my exit. Yes. So I wait typically about a half hour after dark and then I go through the swamp to exit. So I wait for the deer to leave the swamp to come into the crop field and then I exit back through the swamp so I'm not spooking anything with my exit. Wow. Because spooking deer, a lot of people, you know, after a hunt they feel, well, you know, I can wear this big bright headlight and shine the light coming down the tree and exit because my this hunt's over, so nothing matters. Yeah. Everything matters. When you're hunting pressure deer, every detail, every time you spook a deer so matters. You, your descent is as important as your... Oh, absolutely. Or I sent to yeah. the stand. And it'd be exactly the opposite on a morning hunt. On a morning hunt, because the deer are going to be out in the crops, I'm going to come in through the swamp to my tree on the edge and then hunt because the deer are going to be coming out of the crops early in the morning or yes. just prior to daylight and pass by me. And then after that hunt's over late in the morning, you know, I'll exit out through the crop field because the deer aren't out there anymore. Wow. So entries and exits have a lot to do with it. And when I'm hunting public land, um, you know, I try to pretend when I'm hunting heavily public pressured property like public land in zone three in Michigan, mm -hmm. which, you know, yes. there's there could easily be 40, 50 bow hunters and trees in every 640 acres on opening day yes. of bow season. I've uh, hunted many places like that. Uh, I try, When I'm scouting stuff like that, I pretend everybody's trying to kill me. So where are the only places ah, I will hunt? It's a mindset. Uh, I will go look at that I might feel comfortable moving during daylight hours. Because if I can walk like the TV guys do, if I can walk in an upright walking position to a location, I don't care if there's 50 scrapes and 2,000 rubs around it. It's irrelevant. Because that if there's a mature buck visiting that, they're visiting it during the security of darkness. Okay. Because there's so many hunters, somebody else is going to find it as well. Yes. And they're going to they're going to totally destroy it. So when I'm hunting public lands, typically what I do is I have to access my location with waders, hip boots, canoe, boat, or crawling on my hands and knees. Wow. I've got to go places other hunters are just not willing to go. I mean, that's where they push the big bucks too. Yeah. Absolutely. So those are the places where I'm going to have a daytime opportunity. Let's let's uh, expand on that a little bit. You mentioned mm -hmm. the the canoe and, and the other tools. How is it that I mean, if you're hunting public land, mm -hmm. I mean, I have some ideas of how probably you pull it off. But do you worry about your equipment? I mean, the canoe obviously does that have to be? I would assume that it's pl placed or in place long before that day comes when you jump in it. Or am I no, wrong my canoe. It? No, my canoe weighs forty two pounds. It's really? very light. Oh yeah. my. And typically, they're, they're, if tip, typically, if I'm in a canoe, I'm going in. I'm going up a river. Okay. I'm yes. going up a okay. river or across a lake. Yes. Uh, most rivers, most public lands, when I need to cross water, I can typically do it in in yeah. chest waders. Yeah. Typically, I can find an area in chest waders. So that's why I do most of the time. Okay. My two biggest Michigan bucks were both killed 
in cattail marshes in islands in, within cattail marshes where I had to wear chest waders almost three-eighths of a mile through waist-high water in cattails to oh access my. the island. But I would guarantee nobody's ever been on those islands before. There not wasn't a, any sign of a human on those, on those no, islands. It's certainly not with those efforts that need to be made. Yeah, you could take a hundred really, really good hunters, and ninety-nine out of mm -hmm. them aren't going to go through that. Yeah, I and I don't hunt there anymore. My brother still hunts in that area. Now I would assume nowadays probably somebody has hunted back in that area. In fact, mm -hmm. a guy killed a big buck down in the same zone. Okay. I don't know where he was hunting, but now with aerial aerial photos ah. and stuff, you can see those little islands. Yeah. I can remember when I found that one island where I killed my state record buck. I was just walking along the edge of these cattails, and I could just see the tips of some trees out in the middle of this cattail marsh. And I just thought, I've got to go check that out. Because yeah. if, that, if, that, if that's an island, obviously it's a dry spot because there's mature trees there. Yeah. And I thought, if that's an island, you know, and there's and that's not the end of the cattails, it's just an island. Yeah. It's you know, old, there's, it's old well, there's going to be a big buck bedding around the perimeter of that or on it, yeah. and it's exactly what happened. Let me ask you, um, uh, I mean, it ties in, I think, what, what, with what we're discussing here. Go through a little bit of a mindset of that mature buck. And when I say that, um, public land buck in Michigan, or wherever, uh, what's what? What are your expect? What do you? What are your guidelines, or what should you expect as far as age? Um, if we look at a Pope and Young score on it, I mean, what are we usually looking at? And then what's going on in that? What do you think is going on in that buck's mind, even in that short little time, that just before you're hunting him? I mean, that that evening you're sitting there, and how long do you sit? That those um, type of things. Well, during rut phases, if, if I'm in a bedding area, you know, yes. like the cattail marsh is definitely back in a bedding area, it's an all-day set. Okay. So I'm going to be on that island two hours before daylight. So I've got, I've got to be there way before he's going to come in. Um, but everything mature buck-wise, especially on public land and heavily pressured, and I've hunted a lot of private parcels that were just as pressured as a lot of public yes. lands I've hunted because you get downstate, yeah. You get in states with high populations, like in Zone 3, uh, you know, there may be 20 or 30 property owners that own 5s and 10s and 20s in a section. And yes. if all of them have one or two people hunting, there, that's a lot of hunters. So um, when you get into places like that, uh, you just got to get back where nobody's got to be. And everything mature buck-wise has to revolve around security cover. I never in Michigan hunt any location, even on knock on doors for private, you know, private property mm -hmm. permission. I never hunt any place that doesn't have perimeter security cover around the kill zone and transition security cover to a known bedding area. So a buck has to be able to leave a bedding area, come through security cover of some form or skirt security cover where he's got a quick exit route. And then at my destination location, let's say it's at an apple tree at a primary scrape area or at a white oak tree, or it's in a funnel, you know, a tight mm -hmm. pinch point yes. of transition security cover, it's got to have security cover around it. Mature bucks that are three and a half years old or older in Michigan, which it usually has to be at least three and a half years yeah. old, be a P and Y, typically four and a half. Everything revolves around security cover. If there's not security cover there, the odds of killing a mature buck at it with any consistency is pretty close to zero. 
So that immediately eliminates hunting in any mature timber with no understudy. You know, if there's no security cover understudy, you know, like a lot of a lot of uh, timber, the canopy doesn't let any sun come through, so there's no brush on the on the ground yes. under the trees. So I would never even consider hunting in there uh, on the field edge, unless it was in standing corn, where they've got the standing corn as a bedding area, and they can transition from bedding area standing corn into timber. So they got security cover to security cover. Yes. So if I found a primary scrape area. Uh, and I set up on it. Let's say I went out this time of year because I'm a big postseason scouting guy, and I found a major primary scrape area on the edge of a crop field. I may set it up as a hunting location, but if that crop that year ends up being in soybeans or hay or something short, winter wheat, I would not hunt it. I wouldn't waste my time because the bucks I want to kill are not going to visit that area during daylight hours. Mm. They may visit wow. it, but it'll be after dark. Interesting. But if it was in standing corn, because they got security cover to security cover, I would definitely hunt it. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, when I was doing some hunts in Missouri this last fall, we had some soys and we had some corn, standing corn, mm -hmm. and a couple parcels looked really remarkably good for hunting, and the farmer um, could not get the combines over there to uh, pick the corn. And um, so my couple of hunters that were hunting that were very, very frustrated. And I, I just, you know, tried to encourage it to say that, hey, um, the sign's there and the corn's there. When the corn gets picked, that's gonna change everything. Now that can be good, but the sign's there right now. Along the edge of the corn? Along the edge of the corn. See, and that it, would be good that it's there if it's in standard right. corn because it's just, security cover. And I just didn't understand, you know, why. Mm -hmm. And they didn't hunt it for three days because one of them actually ran into an employee of the farmer and said, yeah, we'll have that picked mm -hmm. tomorrow. Well, they had a breakdown, et cetera. So that 269 acres never got hunted wow. at all. Zero. Never did get hunted, I period. love hunting. If, if there's a scrape area on the edge of a standing cornfield, I'm all over it. Wow. Neat. All over it. Because they, wow. got, they got immediate exit security cover. Wow. And typically mature bucks, depends on the type of area you're in. If there's not right. a lot of other bedding areas, they'll, they'll be bedded in the standing corn. Wow. In during season. Wow. Uh, That's very normal. Let me, let me ask you. Uh, um, but I, I, got, I, do oh, have sure. to, I do have to say one thing. When I'm hunting out of state, I drop all my guard. Hunting out of state is totally, I hunt totally 100% different than I hunt in Michigan. Okay. I will hunt the edge of crop fields, open crop fields when I'm in Iowa and Kansas. Okay. I will hunt mature timber with no understudy. Those deer, there's so many mature bucks and they're so easy to kill and I don't think they're that brilliant for their age group compared to here. Uh, you can just get away with murder out there because there's so wow. little hunting pressure. They're, they just, let me put it into perspective this way. Of the 31 Michigan buck, bucks I have in the record book, 28 of them had been hit with previous projectiles from hunters. Some of them as many as four different projectiles. Oh my goodness. I wouldn't, you could have asked me to guess 28 that. out of 31. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have guessed past Guess how many of my 19 out of state bucks had been touched by a previous hunter projectile? I have no idea. Zero. Oh, wow. None. And those bucks on average were an older age class than the ones from Michigan. They, those bucks probably averaged four years old, where my average Michigan buck's probably three and a half years old. 
Now, we both live in Michigan. I don't want to sound like we're boasting about the difficulty of hunting, because that's not necessarily a boastful topic, but there's some pretty well-educated whitetails here in the we state. We have more bow hunters than any state in the country. We have 320,000 bow hunters. Our hunter densities are almost eight per square mile, and that's a statistical average based on our absolute land mass. Okay. Um, uh, so basically... Against the, against the tags sold. Yeah, well, I... You can go in the U.S. Almanac, or I can't remember where we got it. In all of our books, we have uh, absolute hunter densities oh, okay, per square yep. mile. Mm -hmm. And we took we take the uh, square miles for every yeah. state divided by licensed bow hunters. Right, And right. that's where you get your hunter density yeah. per absolute square mile. But you take a state like Michigan, it's 8, almost 8. It's 7.8 something. Wow. Um, but then that includes the land mass of the UP, which is probably at least at least a third of the landmass, if not more. Yeah. And nobody hunts in the UP. Very so few. if you take the UP <laughs> and most of northern Michigan out of that, you know, you get down into zone three, I would I would almost bet the average hunter density per square mile, just bow hunter. Yeah. Usually guns are double bow. Yeah. But bow is probably around twelve to fifteen per square mile. And that and then that doesn't include taking the landmass of Detroit and Flint and Grand oh, Rapids yeah. out of all the areas where there's no hunting. And yeah. Michigan's got a lot of big cities. Yes, yeah, the unhuntable areas. Yeah, the, and you no go shooting to, zones. Yeah, exactly. you go to a state like Kansas, and you're looking at statistically one every bow hunter in Kansas, statistically according to their landmass and license mm -hmm. hunters, has 3,200 acres to hunt. In Michigan, in Zone Three, it's about one. Every boner has an average of 40 acres done. <laughs> that's almost oh. an 80 times difference. Wow. That's stats. That's that, not an approximation. That's a statistic. That puts things in perspective right yes. there. So yeah. we've educated Yes. Uh, yeah. over time. And it's got to be now into their bloodstream. And Michigan is not the sole state for hunting pressure. You've got PA, West Virginia, Virginia, Massachusetts, New York, Wisconsin, Ohio has a lot of bow hunters. I mean, they kill way bigger bucks in Ohio than we do in Michigan, but they do have a lot of hunting pressure as well. Um, you know, all the states up in the Northeast, uh, Connecticut, they all have a lot of hunting pressure because they're states that have high general populations. Obviously, yes. the states with higher general populations are going to have higher hunter densities. Yes, okay. Well, that's interesting, though. You talked about the UP. I can't get a, uh, past without further discussion of UP in some capacity. It's just a, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a, I'll admit it, it's a doggone love affair with that place, you know. Oh, it's awesome, it's beautiful. It <laughs> There's, you know, I, I've not experienced uh, a whole lot better of deer hunting than I did in Missouri, but you know, I, I'll be honest, I mean, yeah. I always am, I'll be very frank to say that if I were given the choice, I'd go to the UP yeah. for a variety. The last time we did a, a bull hunt during October, uh, was I think three years ago, three years ago or two years ago. Our deer herd is just down, as we know, and, and there's a lot of variables with that. But it, it was funny, the last we had, there was a uh, roofing contractor, mm -hmm. and he had two guys that, and his crew out of about six or eight that were identified as hardcore hunters. And um, so he called and said, hey, Gary, uh, we're doing some roofing projects in the Sioux and then Marquette. And he says, I don't really need the place for them to stay. I've got a cabin rented, but it's mm -hmm. kind of near your spot. Would you, you set these guys up? And we did. And so um, 
I just had to set up the spot. So, you know, usually I try to set up two or three per person. And uh, they were going to hunt three days. And they hunted a day and a half. And they had, they had a, they had a uh, confrontation with wolves, each of them. And it wasn't a uh, adversarial one in that they weren't aggressive, but they were, uh, well, they were, yeah, they were uh, followed back right. to their vehicle. And they, Escorted back to their vehicle. Were, that was the end of that. That was my last bow hunter. And uh, the one guy said, boy, you didn't tell me I needed to pack my uh, my pistol. I said, do you have a CPL? Yeah, he said, I just didn't think. He said, I, I carry it when I'm downstate. So... But it was funny, you know. It was uh, the UP is in its class of its own. Uh, I yeah. didn't say it's ahead of the class; it's in its class of its own. Why they ever introduced wolves to the UP, I have no clue. Uh, yeah, that's... UP used to be one of the most phenomenal deer hunting places. I mean, back in the old days, Michigan Outdoors, Morton F, nine out of ten bucks on Morton F were from the UP. Absolutely. Now it's totally the other direction. Yes, nine out of ten are from Southern Michigan. Yeah, it's almost like you'll see a couple thrown in. Yep. Just to say we've got a couple from the UP, and they're. Decent bucks, but they're not what they used to be. Oh, my God. They used to kill monsters up there. Yeah. Before they put wolves. I don't know why they did the wolves. Yeah, I don't know either. We we tried to uh, foster a, uh, we called it a companion trap line where people would bow hunt. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of bow hunters just aren't going to sit all day. So they would come back, and if we had a group of three or four, there's one guy that wants to lay on the couch. There's one guy that can't sit still. And there's one guy that's just going to go for a walk or something, you know. So Gotta love the walkers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we, we would take the guy that can't sit still, and he'd, he'd I'd set traps. I always set a trap line, because if you're going to go from A to B. For him or for animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a fine line, in it? Yeah. And the first time, I mean, we had a guy that just was ecstatic and all we were checking at the time was beaver traps which isn't yeah. i mean you got to know a little bit but they're not over overly the, hard yeah no they're not really not but he just fell in love with that well we started this companion trap line well you start catching you know a wolf in your trap and you gotta you know pin him down and get him out and uh and that's what you do i mean we just had to do that and that was kind of the end of that that could yeah like, that could be interesting <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah that was funny but wow uh, yeah so <laughs> anyways uh um i'd like to you know you talked about your setup um mm -hmm. you you your knowledge my harness of, yeah you want to see it i would love to see that Okay. Yeah, thank you. Okay, yeah. Uh, let yeah. me let me say something first, real sure. quick. Sure. Uh, because we talked about the workshops, I'm going to give my my website. Oh, absolutely. All that all the information on everything is on my website, books and DVDs. Yes. Uh, it is www.eberharts e b e r h a r t s whitetailworkshop.com. Nice. eberhartswhitetailworkshop.com or Deer, that's D-E-E-R, with the little hyphen, the dash in between it, DeerJohn.net. Okay. Either one of those Perfect. will get you to my website. Your workshops, when are they usually, when are you running those? Oh, I've got one coming up on April 14th and 15th, okay. and another one April 28th and 29th, and then the next one will be June 2nd and June oh. 3rd. I don't think I'm going to have any more this year than that. Yeah, uh, those two are coming up fast and furious. Well, the first one's full. Oh, okay, yeah. So, yeah, the second one, I'm only I'm only allowing 10 per, very per nice. workshop. Very nice. Because they, they're very interactive. 
Um, you know, I want to be able to answer questions. And I, you know, you get too many people and it's just, it just doesn't work out very well. Um, should there be a previous or an established skill set for a person that attends your workshop? Absolutely not. Okay. Nope. Nope. I have a lot of novice. <laughs> nice. I shouldn't say a lot. I, I would say usually two out of 10 are, yeah. are relatively novice. I'm not going to say they've never hunted before, but they're right. never at it one or two years. And sometimes and very good guys yeah. come. I had a good. I had a really good hunter come last year, and uh, he came just for the scent control. Wow! And he was blown away. He actually no pun intended, huh? No pun intended. He was very blown away, and wow. he did what I told him or what I suggested. I didn't tell him. Yeah. He'd have beat me up. He's bigger than me. <laughs> he was shocked, and he killed a monster buck at a spot that he set up because it was a spot he never would set up before because he was worried of getting winded. Yeah, kind of an untouchable, is there, unhauntable yeah. spot previous to that. Wow. Yeah, he, he basically, I'll, I'll kind of explain the situation. Yes, please. Quick. He had a little water hole. This was on, he owned his own property. He had a little water hole, and it was between two bedding areas. There was a bedding area about 50 yards on either side. So he never, he always wanted to hunt the water hole because there wasn't a lot of other water in the area. This, the bedding areas didn't have water. There mm -hmm. wasn't any water, he said, for like three-eighths of a mile. So that was a destination spot, you know, every day because yes. deer have to drink. And it had security cover around it. So it had all the things he needed, but he was just afraid if he set something up there. He didn't know which way the buck would come from, or bucks. He had two good bucks on his property last year. And he was always afraid if they came from the wrong bedding area, he'd get winded. Yeah. And he didn't want to do that because he had other places that he thought he could possibly get a potential chance at them. So after the workshop, he went in and he prepped that location, bought the scent lock suit, head cover, started washing his backpack and stuff. And the first day he went in there, I think it was October 2nd, he saw 14 different deer and they were lingering around, you know, like drinking. They were there yeah. for a while and he never got winded, which kind of blew his mind. Because he never had any scent control before. He always hunted the wind. And then about two weeks later, mid-October, it was supposed to rain the next day. So he knew if it rained, now there's going to be pools of water in the two bedding areas. So yes. not that negates his water hole as a destination spot. He's thinking. He's thinking, oh yeah, this guy was a good hunter. Yeah. He killed some nice bucks. He came strictly for the scent control. That's all he came for. Okay. And uh, he got up in the tree and he sat there and he had several does and fawns come in and drink and there was four subordinate bucks at the water hole while wow. while he's sitting there they're all year and a half old bucks and he said almost at the same moment all four of them turned their heads and looked at the bedding area which was downwind of him it was the one on his right downwind down the bedding area downwind and that's a buck one of the two big bucks was coming to the water hole from that bedding area directly downwind of him wow and he said oh my god he was just so scared because he had been bow hunting probably 20 some years and when you bow hunt a long time and somebody's going to tell you you can negate the wind yeah I just, that you think they're full of bs nuts yeah and i thought the same thing you know i hunted 35 years 100 percent wind and then 17 not um, but anyway, that buck came in and he shot it at 14 yards Oh my! and he was blown away. And he said all season long, he never had a deer spook that, from winding him. Wow. He had deer downwind of him all the time. And he said the coup de gras was, uh, just prior to the rut. He had this one location that he wanted to hunt in the evening 
and he could never hunt it in the evening because he had to walk through a weed field to get to it. And deer would always cross through that weed field, you know, b before dark and cross his scent and spook the does. And uh, so he said, you know what, I'm going to try this. And these weeds were just a little over waist high. So he, he carried his bow up over his head so he made sure his bow didn't touch anything. And he walked through the weeds and that evening he had three, he didn't kill anything that evening, but he had three different mature does with fawns cross his route and wow. never spooked. And he said, this but I'll reset this a little bit too. John it's been a pleasure uh, uh, chatting with you today but it's more than Thanks. just a chat I mean this was uh, uh, I I'm I'm confident from my end that this is a uh, I've, I've you're a friend that I just hadn't met yet <laughs> so I had well, the pleasure of meeting you at the uh, West Branch show that uh, it, yeah. It, yeah and uh, but that was such a busy day and you know, yeah. we had a lot going on, but uh, so I, I really cherish this uh, well, thank you. time we've had, and I've learned a ton of stuff. Well, it was my pleasure, and I'm going to send you all the scent lock information, and... Uh, I'm all set about reading that, too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I've, uh, you know what, eliminating scent is just a monstrous deal. That yeah. just change. that's a game changer, and people say it can't be done, They're, that's a total fallacy. It can be done, I do it all the time. I've... I have deer downwind of me all the time, and I don't get winded. Wow. Excellent. And despite the conditions going on. Despite it's... any conditions. Wow. Nice. Well, yeah, I want to reach out, say thanks for having me in your thanks, home. Thanks, Gary. I appreciate and it. Th thanks for... Uh... Appreciate the offer. Oh, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah.